This episode is brought to you by Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma. When it's time for an aircraft component inspection, overhaul, repair, or replacement, you need experienced technicians you can trust and friendly service you can count on. Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma, a family-owned business since 1959, delivers just that. Our techs have real-world experience and provide sales, service, and overhaul for piston engine aircraft accessories. We also have limited turbine capabilities such as fuel pumps, starter generators, and prop governors. And we can overhaul propellers ranging from fixed pitch to turbine. Propeller pickup and delivery service is available. And one more thing, mention this podcast to receive 5% off your next sale, service, or overhaul. Visit aircraftaccessoriesofok.com. This podcast is sponsored by Genesis Aerosystems, a Moog company and leading provider of autopilots for rotor and fixed-wing aircraft. The Genesis STEC 5000 is the latest digital autopilot providing increased safety plus decreased pilot workload. It's being certified for Part 23 and Part 25 retrofit aircraft such as high-performance turboprop and turbine jet aircraft. To learn more about the STEC 5000, visit genesis-aerosystems.com. This week on Hangar Talk, we talk about two unique Guinness World Records. And Cirrus Vision Jets avoid meltdowns. The Air Force is looking for flying cars. Bell's coming out with an electric tail rotor. Finally, the gamma numbers are out. Good news, bad news. Are you ready to do some Hangar Talk, Ian? Let's do some Hangar Talk, David. From AOPA, your freedom to fly. This is Hangar Talk. The 1056 turn right heading 130, contact final 132.4. Turn right, With your hosts, Ian Twombly and David Tulitz. This is Hangar Talk. Welcome to Hangar Talk, everybody. I'm Ian Twombly. And I'm David Tulis. And uh, David, once again, proving I'm a slacker, you caught up with our guest this week. <laughs> this is, uh, this is I love this. People, you know, they, they like to share their experiences now learning to fly uh, with social media because that's so easy. And this is a guy, Ted Greenfield, who learned to fly over 50, and he's got some advice for folks who are doing the same. Yep, and I met him here. Actually, Ted was part of a, of a group that convened here to talk a little bit about ADSB, and he's a real good guy, and he's got a great attitude. And it goes to show you that you can teach old dogs new tricks. Okay, cool. So we'll hear from Ted later, hear about his tips. But first, let's start out. A couple of pilots with some ingenuity here on these Guinness World Records. Now, so, David, I don't know. You, We've talked about some of these records in the past. You know, we just talked about Bill Harrelson flying around the world. You know, there's others who have done it. We're a little little more down to earth here. Christopher Freeze in California set the record. Now, I didn't even know this existed. This is a Guinness record for the longest airplane wheelie. Correct, Ian. And you would, uh, you, you would uh, be curious to know that Christopher Freeze, who's a CFI, and he... See, here's the thing. There's actually a teaching moment involved in this. Okay. Chris teaches other pilots how to fly, and it's a soft feel technique that he performed, but he performed it way longer than you and I would normally do it. It was almost three miles out in in Southern California there, so it was was an incredible amount of time. So... uh, And so... Yeah, so why? I guess, you know, with a, with a record like this, the question is why? Why would you do something like this? I mean, other than you mentioned the teaching moment, but there's got to be another reason, right? 
Well, well, Freeze actually has another record under his belt. It's one of these uh, Federation Aeronautique International records. It's a point-to-point record. But people always asked him, they're like, hey, I, you know, I can't find that record. You really need to set one in the Guinness World Record book. And so he, he basically he opened up the, the book of world records, looked about you know, what he could do with airplanes, and he's not mega rich or anything like that. So I don't, I'd like to say that on a, on, a, you know, on a shoestring budget, he went and found a record that he could bag. And, and Ian, he said he didn't want to just bag the record. Basically, he wanted to crush the record so, so nobody else <laughs> could follow in his footsteps. So now you know what the longest runway is in the United States, right? Uh, let's see. Is it still the shuttle landing facility in Florida? Well, okay, you got me on that. I was, I was going. Okay, the longest commercial airport runway, uh, which is Denver International, right? Ah, okay. See, now I got to look these up because I don't know which one's longer. <laughs> it might actually be Denver. I don't know. So Denver International Airport. You know, Christopher was trying to figure out where could he do this record, but you know, shutting down Denver International for a couple hours really was out of the question. So he picked. Victorville's 15,050-foot-long runway 1735 instead. <laughs> well, can you imagine shutting down Denver International for a wheelie record? Wouldn't happen, man. I know. I know. Well, I want to know, did he call? Did he try? I mean, you know, because it's like if you're going to try something like this, you why not shoot for you? Like, does he call the Denver airport manager and it's like, hey, do you mind? I just need one runway. It's like I don't need the whole airport. Like, can I have it for an hour, you know? Well, you know, I asked the same question to our good friend Spencer Suderman, who's also been on Hangar Talk with us, because uh, he has set the the world's inverted flat spin record before, and he has to go up to a very high altitude. And I said, well, how did you get permission to do that? And he said, well, I asked. So, yeah, there you <laughs> so go. there okay. is a lot yeah. to be said for that. It's a good yeah. point. Yeah, yeah, right. Well, I, did, I didn't ask uh, Mr. Freeze if he asked uh, Denver International or the ATC folks there, but he instead he went to San Bernardino County's Victorville Airport, and then it's a, almost like basically a three-mile-long runway. So, so that was pretty good. This wheelie was 14,319 feet at the Southern California Logistics Airport. And that, that was on Valentine's Day. And, you know, and Chris got a response from Guinness World Records. It normally takes several months you know, to get a response, but he got one pretty quick. And they said that, yes, he did set the world's longest wheelie record in, a, in an aircraft. So more power to Chris. Yeah, good for him. By the way, before we leave this, I want to say you were right. Uh, Denver is a longer strip. They have uh, one six right, three four left, 16,000 feet. The shuttle landing strip, which of course is not a public runway, but shuttle landing strip, 15,000 feet. Oh, well, so the shuttle landing strip is pretty close to Victorville's, you know, amount of amount of footage there. And look, be- before we leave the total subject of records, let's give our podcast listeners a quick update on Tennessee pilot Daniel Moore. Now, our, our listeners might remember that Daniel tried to set a record on September 11th where he wanted to go to 110 airports in 24 hours and he was doing that uh, to to remember some of the victims that perished in 2001 we have the 110 uh, stories of the world trade center towers that was the whole tie-in so he didn't hit 110 he got 92 airports within that time span from elizabethtown municipal airports where he started and ended and so guinness recently certified that he did 
set that record. Now, there's a little controversy with that, Ian. Uh, pe people had written in saying that uh, maybe Guinness you know, had forgotten about an earlier record that might have been set earlier on. But I'm not going to go there. I'm going to go with the most recent information that Guinness said uh, congratulations to, to Daniel Moore for landing at 92 different airports within a 24-hour period. And he used a Bonanza A36, and he had to document each landing with a picture and people on the ground to certify it and things like that. So it, is, it still is quite a feat to do. It is. Yeah, yeah that is, that's, a, that's you know, it's really amazing when it, because, I mean, you know, you just fathom for a minute what that took for him. You know, the fatigue that he must have faced, because I know that the, the most recent uh, record before this was two pilots, so it's like, you know, you can share the duties and you can have time to relax and, you know, put your mind at ease for a little while. But this guy, man, he had to be on it. And it was like 16 hours. I mean, that is quite impressive. It was. And I think at the end of the day, because I was following along a little bit on Facebook because he had some posts, uh, live posts there and, and his family helped out. And I think by the end of the, the end of the day before anything you know, happened, you know, safety wise that uh, that Daniel called it quits. And I think that was a smart move. He had to be extremely fatigued. Absolutely. Well, good for him. Congrats to Daniel. And uh, that is that is a pretty impressive record. And that's that's another one you could, you know, David, it's like you got two. you could you could start planning right now. Call that airport manager in Denver and, uh, you know, look at your maps and you got two you can go for. <laughs> I think I, I've got, you know, I was telling the, the folks who uh, who d don't know, Ian and I chat a lot, you know, before we uh, do our show. And, and I was telling Ian that, uh, I was telling you that I'm, I'm thinking about following in Chris's footsteps to try to set one of those FAI records. And, um, and we'll see what happens. I'll keep our podcast listeners posted. Okay, fantastic. Cool. Hey, moving on. Uh, Cirrus, the Vision Jet, the SF-50. This has been, you know, a big success for Cirrus. Folks moving up from the uh, 22 lines and such a cool jet, single engine. We've We've talked about this. They had an emergency AD about a week ago, and this is this is pretty interesting. It was from a fire that happened on the ground. And if you Google the photos, I mean, it was a fire. It burned the top off the jet. Really, really serious. Thankfully, nobody hurt. You know, as like I said, it was on the ground. But this emergency AD came out. And David, you were saying, you know, it's like one of the most impressive things about this is, is Sirius's response to the whole thing. Yeah, the, so the fire happened on December 27th, and, and it was at Santa Monica Airport over in California. And so basically it was a malfunction of a headset amplifier and microphone you know, circuit card. And, and they got the word out really quick, and within a week, all of these aircraft, almost all of the aircraft had been repaired. I think, I think that's pretty swift for anything of this magnitude, and I haven't heard of anything that happened that quick before. Yeah, yeah, that's true. So I think, you know, Cirrus, this is really one thing they're good at is because they're so tight with the owner community, you know, they were able to, I think, get the word out there quickly, get the jets back into the shops, change these things out. It is such a shame that this person lost their jet just because of a you know, what's really a minor part, you know. Very minor part. So basically there were about 170 SF-50s out there, and within 24 hours of a service bulletin, their, their arrangements have been made to return their, you know, a lot of these aircraft to service, and 97% of the fleet was up within seven days. That's great. I mean, that's really where, you know, manufacturers talking to customers, also talking to FAA, it's like that's good communication. It's the way it's supposed to work, so... That's fantastic. Well, hopefully other manufacturers will follow in their footsteps. Uh, you know, yeah. I think that's a good goal to have. Yep, absolutely. Hey, you know, we like to talk about the eVTOL sector here a little bit occasionally, just from a technology standpoint. And you caught on to this story. This is pretty interesting. The Air Force now, I guess having uh, given up on jetpacks, is now into eVTOL. 
Uh, they say they want a flying car. The Air Force is seeking flying cars, Ian. So if you've got one up your sleeve, let them know. What's interesting about this for me is that it's a request for proposals, basically, for a flying car for for transport purposes. And I, by that, I'm thinking not huge amount of troop movements, but just a handful of troops from one point to another point. But the significance is they're looking outside of their own military service and relying on commercial firms to develop and test something like this, a prototype that would, would actually work in this type of situation. And, you know, instead of going through all the time and money and the expense of getting something certified with the FAA, they, they want other people to do it. Hmm. Yeah, it is pretty interesting because, you know, the, the way the guy talks about this, Will Roper, who I guess is hard, the head of the acquisition part of the Air Force, you know, he was making these comments. And, and it is interesting because, you know, the FAA, obviously, if you're going to certify one of these eVTOLs, it's like you're going to be a pioneer in terms of having to come up with the standards and work with them every step of the way. It's going to take a while. It's going to be really expensive. But his point is, hey, man, private firms are funding you. You've got the money. You're making the technology. Come to the Air Force. We'll get it working even faster. Get the thing in the field to help test it, you know, which is which I think is interesting. And he makes the point, actually, that that they the Air Force missed the boat with drones. Yeah. And that obviously all these consumer drones, these small drones are are, you know, they're produced overseas. Right. So, you know, their their interest is in like keeping the technology in the states, which which I find I find pretty fascinating. And don't forget, NASA has already been working with Uber since 2018 on a similar flying car concept for civil transport. So this is not an unheard of liaison, really. Yeah. Yep, that's right. So yeah, I you know it will be interesting to see if some of the early ones kind of jump on that Air Force. You know, DARPA. I guess they they did mention DARPA a little bit. DARPA is kind of the forefront there of the of the crazy sci-fi sort of military tech, and so you know potentially those things could kind of align. But the, the one of the most interesting things about this, I think, is if you if you read the story, it's like Roper. He he talks like somebody who's from Silicon Valley. It's so different from what you hear out of the Air Force, you know, and it's like. He's talking about catalyzing the commercial market and value propositions and being an influencer. And it's like, I don't know. It, it really caught me. I don't know something about it. Um, I guess the guy maybe comes from a commercial background or something like that. Yeah, I can't see Air Force personnel talking in those those terms. But nonetheless, I do like I do like where they're going. And the thing is, if you can get another you know public private partnership going, I, I think that'll help spur a lot more you know in technology and follow on in those footsteps. Yeah, that's true. So hey, actually, it's a great segue to Bell. Now maybe you've seen this. They are testing. In fact, they have tested and have been testing an electric anti-torque tail rotor. And so you think, okay, well, sure, electric aviation. But this obviously has implications for the eVTOL world, and not to mention, you know, civilian helicopters as well. And it's it's really interesting, I think, what they're doing here. And like we said, lots of implications across different, uh, different industries. So, Ian, I'm going to ask you to explain it to us in a minute, but this is the vertical stabilizer on a helicopter, which, you know, I've been in, in several helicopters and I've taken some lessons before. And we're looking at usually... A blade that rotates vertically back there and is connected by a drive shaft and it's powered by the main engine. So I could see there being some fail points along the line. And I was hoping you could explain to us how this model 429, you know, is going to utilize four different tail rotor electric motors and what that would really mean. Yeah, so it's it's quite different. You know, there's all sorts of issues with helicopter tail rotors, right? There's there's noise. 
a lot of what you hear on a helicopter, the noise is the tail rotor, you, that really high-pitched sort of screaming sound. It's like that's coming from the tail rotor. There's safety. That's, you know, one reason why some of the European helicopters use that fenestrum system where the, you know, the fan is inside the tail rotor or the vertical stabilizer, sorry. Inside, kind of inside of housing. Yeah, yeah. That's, you know, for safety. And so this this helps with some of that. One of the big things that they found is a, is a reduced noise signature. And it's because with a helicopter, you know, constant speed propellers on airplanes, right? Yeah. So the, the deal is, you know, fixed pitch, it's like the, the thing's bolted there. The RPMs go up and down as you pitch up and down, you know, that sort of thing. With a constant speed prop, obviously, the, the angle of the blades is changing all the time. Well, that's more like how a helicopter operates. The tail rotor and the main rotor go more or less at, they're trying to at least, at a constant RPM. So the one of the reasons this system is different is that the little blades on these electric fans are fixed. And they vary speed because they can do that really easily, electrically controlled through the anti-torque pedals. So theoretically, while a helicopter is cruising and you're getting benefit from that vertical stabilizer, they can reduce the speed of the tail rotor and really cut down on the noise signature. And the other thing it does is it, the tail rotor zaps power from the main rotor. Because it's taking that, taking that engine power to power that tail rotor. Yeah, exactly. And so by having an electric tail rotor separate from that main rotor and the main you know, power source, I don't know how heavy batteries would be in that sort of thing, but theoretically, you know, you could have some efficiencies there by not, you know, sucking off power from the main rotor. Right. Now, if I understand it correctly, some of the technology involved in this particular model allows for a generator to help power those tail rotors. And I could see one day that being a totally separate system that would work independently. Yeah. Now, one thing we're talking about with the VTOL is, you know, you've seen they've got this sort of the multi-small rotors, just like drones. And that's where a lot of these companies are going. And so Safran is the one supplying these parts for the Bell currently. And they are also Bell's partner with the eVTOL. And so I think what you're finding there is Bell like, well, you know, maybe there's some some use here in our civilian helicopters. But really, I think where they're going probably is the eVTOL world and testing that. There's some synergy there, but it looks like it's, again, leading to more technology that we can use in the future. Yeah. Yeah. You got it. Yeah. Cool deal. Yeah. So, hey, speaking of future and, and future tech and, and what where things are going big term, the gamma numbers came out. Shipments, you know, I would say pistons, jets looking great, uh, turboprops and helicopters, not so good. Yeah, you know, obviously, you know, we talked a lot about the training market here in the past few months, and that has helped drive some pretty positive numbers for the GAMMA, the, the General Aviation Manufacturers Association year-end sales, which were announced on February 19th. And it looks like business jets also soared up to a 10-year high. That's that's uh, so, some surprising news. But there's been some movement in that marketplace with some new models coming on board, like the Cessna Longitude, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. So we're seeing a, a big increase in the in the GA piston training fleet. Uh, at the same time, we're seeing uh, an increase in the high-end jet fleet. Yeah, which I think, boy, it's the the jet thing is a little surprising. It finds you know you find that people it's really bounced back, which I just think is. Uh, it's taken a while, you know, but it's there. Brian Foley, you know, made the point, and, and a lot of people have said it's because development programs are finally coming online. So, like the latitude now for the past, what, year plus, the longitude just recently, you know, Bombardier, same thing. So, you're seeing kind of the fruits of investment there, which I think is kind of interesting. But yeah, the real thing for, you know, the GA world is is these training airplanes, which are just 
just exploding. It's incredible. That's true. And so it looks like that we've we've had piston airplane deliveries the had the largest growth among the segments at 16.4%. And the business jet deliveries were at their highest since 2009. So in 10 years, it was the highest in 10 years. That's pretty pretty good as far as numbers go. Now, you did mention a minute ago there was a pretty good drop in turboprop sales basically driven a lot by uh, you know reduced demand for aircraft used in the agriculture and firefighting segments so and there's also and we've talked about this before even though um, we've also had some helicopter specialists on but there's been a decline in helicopter sales too yeah robinson in particular just got hammered really hammered uh it's sad to see that you know the 44 and the 66 they say they're gonna have a better year this year we'll see but some others too you know Enstrom took a bit of a hit. Bell was down a little bit on the 505. So, yeah, that, the helicopter world, it's like it's hard to see what's going on there. Uh, I think people keep thinking they're at the bottom, and they're not. So, you know, we'll see what happens there. But, but yeah, man, it's it, all the good news is in, is in Pistons. I mean, Piper. Well, there was some good news in the helicopter market if you're doing military oh, yeah, procurement. That's true, yeah, <laughs> yeah you're, that's still saving your business. Right, right. Yeah, yeah, we were looking. I mean, Blackhawks, who knew they were even still making Blackhawks? I guess, you know, 94 of them this year. That's amazing. Although that was still down from 107 in, two, in 2018. Yep, that's true. Now, now you, I was asking you about what about an H1 Huey. So that's the original Huey yep. helicopter. <laughs> still making those. It's their 26 of those went out the door this year but now again that was compared to 34 last year that's down a third yep yeah exactly so but yeah i mean it, i think you know the piston world is where it's at just looking at 2018 the archer piper you know we love to watch them come back to their glory they made 107 archers last year this year they made 182 so yeah that's that's fantastic cessna on the other hand they need to go with the program i don't know if they're giving up on the single engine line or what's going on there but you know in this training market they produced fewer skyhawks which i just you know they should be doing a heck of a lot more so but the flip the flip side of the textron market ian is when you look at it vertically from the 172 of the cessna line through the king airs and through the cessna citations and all because they have all those brands underneath the Textron belt, mm-hmm. you know, they still turned over 600 units, 600 aircraft uh, in 2019, and that's pretty significant. And there, there's a lot of the higher end models that really uh, help drive that that up. 58 of the uh, Cessna Latitudes went out the door. That's pretty good. And we we're talking about the longitude, uh, the newest one, 13 of those were sold all or basically sold in 2019. That's that's pretty significant for a model that just came on board. Yeah, it is. So yeah, they'll clear through that backlog. And and you're right. I mean, overall the company, it's like they got to be happy. But of course, we want to see them deliver some Skyhawks. You know, which you know, one uh, successory Diamond. This year, what 233 airplanes compared to last year, where they only had 134. That's amazing. Huge turnaround. That's almost double. And um, now, of course, Cirrus Aircraft is still your market leader in the GA segment. But that with 465 total units, and that includes the SR-20, which they came out with the track model for training, the SR-22, the 22T, and we were talking about earlier the uh, Vision Jet, the SF-50. Now, the Vision Jet also included 81 deliveries of that Vision Jet You know, with those Cirrus numbers. That's pretty strong. It is. Yeah, that is good. I, you know, in the jet world, one, I think, disappointment is you got to look at Honda. You know, they should be, I think, they came out with a new model. 
you know, an updated model. When you're watching Embraer and Cessna and all those really continue to climb, it's like you want to see Honda climbing too. And they, they were kind of flat. So that's probably going to be a little disappointing to them. And segueing from Honda to back to the to the smaller GA world, to the LSA world specifically, I was looking at Icon aircraft because I've been tracking them quarter by quarter when we talk about the gamma numbers, as you and I do frequently. Mm-hmm. And so initially they had about 1,800 of these aircraft on order in 2018, and 41 of them were delivered in 2019. Okay, so 41 out of 1800 so Ian I did some math about how many years do you think it's going to going to take to take care of that backlog at 41 per year <laughs> Oh man I don't know oh my gosh you're going to show my bad math skills <laughs> almost 44 years <laughs> 43.9 years. Now, of course, and assumably they'll crank it up a little bit. And as you and I uh, discussed sometimes that, you know, some of those original reservations have dropped off the, the charts already as well. But even still, that worries me that that's not a very high number. You know, 41 per year is about 10 per quarter, yep. really. So it's about three per month or so. Yeah, yeah, especially when you've built this new uh, production facility down in Mexico. It's like you should be cranking them out a little faster than that. So. Yeah, so we'll wait to see what happens next quarter, you know, uh, first quarter of uh, 2020. But I, I think you'll, you know, it's not really a stretch to say you'll see continued growth, I think, in pistons and probably the jets as well and maybe kind of where we were in turboprops, which is, you know, the the corporate brand was about about even. And I think that's probably what you'll continue to see. Sounds good. We'll monitor it. And, of course, we'll let our podcast listeners know the next time the gamma numbers are out. Yeah. So, hey, David, let's talk to Ted. You know, like I said, I think I think it's great that you caught up with him. Really interesting to, you know, sort of show his experience and let others know, others who are a little bit, only a little bit older than me, you know, learning to fly, how it's going. <laughs> so, yeah, it's great that you were able to catch up with him. Ted Greenfield, over 50 and learning to fly. Let's hear about it. Welcome to Hangar Talk, Ted Greenfield. The I guess the not the author, but the founder of the Over Fifty and Learning to Fly YouTube channel. Welcome to APA. Hey, it's great to be here, and thanks for having me, Dave. All right, so Ted, we just met like about an hour ago as part of a panel. We were tr- uh, trying to think about how to get pilots to do more pirate reporting. And you know, what does a pirate stand for, by the way? Pirate is a, is a pilot report, right. and it's essential for giving information out to other pilots who are flying in nearby airspace right. or an airspace that's you know in the same as yours or you're close by. It basically tells you the actual weather conditions that you're experiencing at that very moment. Gotcha. And so we that's how we met just a few minutes ago here at the AOPA You Can Fly campus. But the reason why you're on the Hangar Talk podcast right now is that you have founded a really unique YouTube website for folks that are we're going to say they're in their early silver period, which I'm past my early silver period. I'm into my mid-silver period. But I learned to fly when I was uh, about 40 years old. And your YouTube channel is for folks who are over 50 and, and 
I think you want to encourage them to do it. Well, absolutely. And and I started flying first when I was 16, mm-hmm. and then when I was about 23, and then when I was about 30, and then when I was about 35, and then when I was about 40, and then when I was about 42. I started and stopped a bunch of times just because of life, because of costs, because of things. But in actuality, it really wasn't a priority because I would have finished. Now, I'm 56 uh, as of this day, December uh, 2019. And when I turned 55, I realized that if I'm going to do this, I need to do it now. I need to sink 100% into it. And I need to just get it done and do it. And it really, truly was a life-changing Period. Oh, you mentioned that in one of your uh, introductory videos, and I'm because I wrote down some super quick notes about that. So you've been a pilot. You've gotten your pilot certificate. You've had it for about a year. A little bit no, I've year, had it. Uh, I've had it three years now. Three years. Okay. Um, I, I just finished my instrument rating a few months ago, and I'm working on my commercial right now. Great. Fantastic. And my multi as well. I'm a commercial student, and I'm an instrument student. Now I'm not an instrument pilot yet, but. I've, I got my instrument written past, gosh, over 10 years ago, but it expired, so I need to start that over again. So I am uh, following in your footsteps a little bit, and the Hangar Talk listeners know that a little bit. But So so that's awesome stuff. Now, you also are, I'm not going to put you on the spot and say you're a cardinal, Cessna Cardinal expert, but you do have good experience in the Cessna Cardinal, right? Absolutely. I when I was flying earlier on, I've always loved the Cardinal. It's a great-looking airplane. It has a, a tremendous community around it. And uh, when I started flying, I got into a partnership with the Cardinal, and I absolutely loved the plane. So I went out and bought my own. What year model did you buy? I bought a 1968 A, a model. Well, now, that was one of the earlier ones that had a little bit different uh, action in the elevator, right? Right. And uh, that's been uh, since modified. It has the slats that are put into the stabilator. The airplane is, for a first airplane, it's just tremendous. I paid $38,000 for it, just to talk deal. about the costs. It's a um, deal. Now, it did need some work. Is you know, it's, it's an airplane. It's like an old boat. You're going to need to put money into it. But it's not cost prohibitive because $38,000 is what you'd pay for a nice car. Let me stop you right there, Ted. In the parking <laughs> lot over near where I live, we, I saw a Lincoln Navigator sticker priced at $76,000. I, I would I'll, rather have an airplane at Right, that's almost as much dollars. as I spent for my first house. Right. Okay, so thirty-eight grand is not a, a terrible investment. And you could also... Folks who are just learning to fly that are in their silver ages, you can still get a loan for something like that well, and get partners. Exactly. And and here's the thing is that when you get into your 50s, now is the time to do it. And I just want to say that from the moment I soloed, my life changed. It did. I'm sure it did. I saw your video. Yeah. It, and what occurred to me as I was 55 and you're kind of thinking, hey, what's this next phase of life going to be like? I mean, I have retirement in sight. I love what I do. I work for the FAA. I manage safety promotion for them. And I absolutely love going to work every day. I can't wait to get there. But I don't want to do that for, you know, for the rest of my years. I don't want to be in an office. And I really kind of thought, what am I going to do? And I was, I'm a musician as well. What and do you I, play? I play bass and guitar. I play electric bass. We got a jam, man. There you, there you go. So I really did not know what I was going to do 
kind of post-working. Well, you could uh, you could do some musical. Well, that's um, what I had planned. Activities. So what I'm I was really active in uh, in Christian music, and I was one of the worship leaders at church. And I've been playing Christian music for years. And I thought, well, maybe I'll just produce some Christian CDs, and you know, and, and you know, I'd love to produce a, a modern version of old hymns. So that's really what I was thinking. But when I uh, when I started taking flying lessons, and the moment I soloed. And I'm not kidding. The next 30 years of my life just unfolded for me right in front of with, my eyes. With new horizons. With absolutely. total new horizons. And I'm not kidding. The moment that plane left the ground, the thought hit me, you can do this for a new career. Oh, that's a great segue to what I'm going to – I'm just going to go through your video, uh, Five Reasons to Take Up Flying in Your Early Silver Period. And I've got the five things written down in case you forgot what they were. The first thing we're going to start about is you said it's all in your attitude and everything is possible. Tell Absolutely. me a little bit about that. Everything is possible. So what do you want to do with your life? Do you think you're old and do you just want to retire and go, you know, and take it easy? If you think you're old, you're going to act like you're old. And then you're going to die. So I mean, we got to do something that's <laughs> worthwhile. Right, exactly. So it's really important to have that young mentality, okay? okay? And I've always thought that I've always felt that I was in my 30s, and okay. that, that's never lived. So as I soloed, and we'll just go back to that, as that plane left the ground, I thought, oh, my gosh, I can do this as a new career. I could, at the very minimum, I can get my commercial license, my commercial rating, rather, and just give air tours, just do something. I can even tow banners. I can tow gliders. I could do survey work. I could deliver planes, but this keeps you moving in a new direction that I absolutely love, and I love the aviation community. So all of a sudden, I had this new life just unfolded in me, and I'm not kidding, in the next 10 seconds after that plane left the ground. So that was one of, that was one of the five reasons you mentioned, a new career, air tours, charter, real estate, aviation, missionary work, which sounds like it's close to your heart. Uh, many things like that. We can use our aviation to help other people. All right, that's that's one reason. we got four more to talk about. Look, let's talk about fulfilling a dream. Is it out of reach for most people? Only if you think it is. Only if you think it is. Because if you think it's cost prohibitive and and it's going to be too expensive, well, number one, the plane is 38000 bucks. That's the price of a car. The instruction, it's about ten grand to get your private pilot's license, and that's everything. That's from, from start to finish. It's about another ten grand to get your instrument rating, and then it's probably about five grand to get your commercial rating. So you're looking at $25,000 of education, but what is the price of not having it? And also, it's $25,000 that you probably spend on Starbucks in a few years. Well, I want you to go through the Starbucks formula. You did that on your video. You indicated there was about five grand worth of money that, you know, on average you could spend. If you go out to lunch every day and you go to Starbucks every day, you know, that's what, 15 bucks, something like that? Well, if you go to lunch every day, that's $15. And if you go to Starbucks in the beginning of the day and the middle of the day, all right, so it's $25 a day that you're spending. That's $25 a day, and that is $125 a week, and that is $125 a week is $500 a month. That is $6,000 a year. You multiply that by three years or four years, that's $28,000. Okay. So the money's there <laughs> like it, to man. stop drinking Starbucks. You're going to have to give up something, but... All of that saying is that it's all possible, and you have the money there in your life. You just have to reallocate it. And if you have money, 
you know, and if you know, if spending twenty five grand on a education for flying isn't a big deal, then go do it because it took me five months to get my pilot's license, and when I went to get my instrument rating, I stopped my life. I took a month off of work. And I just hired an instructor, and I did it like a job. Straight through. Straight through. It took me four weeks. I had done the written already, and uh, I was 100% in the game. I was 100% committed. I was mentally there. And when it came to my check ride, I aced it. Awesome. I know. Before we go further, uh, give us the YouTube website where people can grab you and subscribe to your videos. So it's go to YouTube and just search Over 50 and Learning to Fly. And I've got 75, maybe 78 videos on there, and they're just my flying adventures. You got 78 videos on there? Yeah. You did a lot in a short amount of time. Well, I'm a video guy. I mean, I'm, I'm a media producer. That's what I do for work. So I'm an instructional designer. I'm a video producer, graphic artist, editor, audio editor, audio engineer. So that I can put together a video pretty quickly. But they're just my experiences, both good and bad. I have a couple of, not emergencies, but just kind of scary situations that I've, that I've had. A couple of no-fly uh, situations where uh, there was one that's called Flaps Won't Retract, and I went to take off, and I did my pre-fight, and I looked, up the w- looked out the window, thankfully, and I noticed my flaps were stuck in the down position. And I played with the switch. I played with everything can't take off a plane when the flaps are fully extended. It was a simple wire that needed to be fixed, but I ended up leaving the plane there and getting a ride back. But they're my experiences. Also, I have a few videos on there on what this actually costs. I had a couple major upgrades done to my airplane. So I share exactly what it costs, exactly where I got it done, how I got it done, who did I talk to in the process. Because aircraft ownership, in my opinion, aircraft ownership is the way to pursue your flying because Number one, you have control over the situation. You have control over your own airplane. Renting, it is eventually more expensive, but when you own your aircraft, you can just get in your own plane and go. You know where things are, where switches uh, were left, where your headset is, who was the last person in the airplane, how much fuel is in there, how much oil is in there. You're in charge of that aircraft. There's a lot to be said for knowing those values and also having the freedom to do that. Yeah, I exactly. Agree. Yeah, and I, I think, uh, you know, when you have your own airplane, then you can, number two is you can go places. I go between D.C. and Florida all the time. And in a Cardinal, it's a little long. <laughs> um, I do plan on upgrading an airplane eventually. But, you know, I could go somewhere. And, and I, don't, I don't necessarily believe in the $100 hamburger because I want to fly with a purpose and a mission. But it's great to go out to lunch or take a friend out to the eastern shore. Or expose a friend to aviation. Absolutely. And a friend's kids. A, a few of my, my friend's children are really into it. And I say, pass your written test and, you know, and we'll go flying. That makes sense. That way we can get the next generation of aviators involved in aviation. And they could put together some of what they're learning in their science, technology, engineering, and math classes and see it in practical use as well. All right, so the cool deal. The other thing is that um, you said you were flying from the Maryland, D.C., Maryland area down to Florida. That's a little long in a Cardinal. It's a lot longer in a Piper Super Cub. I've done that. But it's a beautiful flight, and folks who have not flown down the East Coast, I mean, you get to fly over First Flight Airport if you want to. 
and uh, fly along the eastern seaboard through Georgia, through the barrier islands. It is pretty darn awesome. And the best part about it for me is that um, I go between here and Tampa, between the D.C. area and Tampa a lot. And when you leave your house, it is six hours door to door. Any way you cut it, you got to get to the airport a few hours early. You got to deal with security. You got to take a 45 minutes, an hour to the airport. If you're flying commercial. Right. If you're flying commercial. Getting in your own plane and going six, uh, six and a half hours down there, stopping for lunch, stopping for fuel, or even breaking the trip up into a couple of days is so much more convenient because there is nothing better than getting in your own plane and leaving. And then when you arrive at your destination, getting into a rental car or getting into your own car at your destination and going to where you're supposed to so be. So basically you're saying it's the same six, seven-hour trade-off uh, or similar to yeah. a commercial flight without the hassle. Yeah, and also it's the cost. So just to full disclosure, what it costs, it costs about $350 in fuel to go one way between D.C. and Florida. But if I'm bringing three people or if I'm bringing two people, then – that's a cheap airplane ride. It is because it's average uh, commercial airplane ticket, I'm guessing, is around $300, $350. Yeah. So if you're flying with more than just yourself, you're already pretty much saving money. Yeah. I like it. All right, let's get back to the top five reasons to uh, take up aviation in your silver, early silver period. We, we uh, went through fulfilling your dream, talking about a new career, and we talked. We had just talked about not that being not that expensive if we uh, give up some Starbucks every once in a while. Tell me about your life and how it just got bigger. Flying is a different way of thinking. And we, as non-pilots, we make decisions in a very linear manner, kind of what comes next. And it's just one step after the other. But in flying, you have to make decisions based on a hundred different moving events. And that whole, that whole equation is constantly moving. The one thing I noticed as I got into 150 and 200 hours of my flying and then past 300 hours of my flying is I noticed that I started making life decisions a little differently. And I'm maybe kind of looking into this a little bit too much, but this is just the reality and this is what happened to me is that I started thinking differently on how I made decisions. My life just got bigger because more things became possible in my life as I started to fly. It was kind of a reset for your whole life from that point forward. A total reset. All of a sudden, it's everything's out in front of me. Everything is possible. And I got into missionary aviation. And in fact, I did a couple of flights to the Bahamas and we flew supplies down there, which was just a, a tremendous experience. And for folks who, are, who weren't paying attention earlier, the summer, this is in the aftermath of Hurricane Dorian, which was devastating to just a couple of islands down there, but complete devastation at those two islands. What did y'all bring down? We brought down stuff that we can go to CVS and get. We bought down paper towels. We brought down cans of soup. We bought down diapers. We bought down baby formula. We bought down those sanitary uh, wipes. Yeah, wet, wet naps and stuff. Wet naps, right. Okay. Stuff that'll fit in a GA aircraft. Yeah. It's not huge. And we took th two th Cessna 310s down. Mm -hmm. And we flew about 1,100 pounds of cargo down there. But when I was down there, planes were coming in and out constantly. And there's just this it's, – it's almost like the Berlin airlift. I mean, they're just – it's just a constant cycle of planes bringing supplies down there. And there are people that are still affected by the storm in a, in a big way. So when you do for others, when you serve others – 
your life becomes bigger. And you can do that easily through aviation. And that's really where I see the next chapter of my life going is I, um, I'm transitioning out of the government and uh, I'm going to go into full-time aviation ministry. I will have my commercial rating and my multi-engine rating within a few months. And that's how I'm going to spend the rest of this next chapter. So you'll be able to serve others using aviation and basically give back to the community that gave you so much. Yeah. And a friend of mine made a a really cool comment. We had flown to the Bahamas. We delivered stuff off. We had some forms and paperwork to fill out with customs and immigration. And then we hopped back in the plane and and, you know, we had a, a normal departure out of there. And we're we're climbing out of 5,000 feet. It's a beautiful sunset, leaving the Bahamas. And he just turns to me and he goes, you know, this wouldn't be as much fun if we were getting paid for it. And that is exactly right because we landed in Palm Beach, we cleared customs, and then we flew back to Wachula, Florida. And we did something wonderful with our time. We did something wonderful with our resources. You know, I believe God has given you these gifts and these resources to serve others. And I, that's how I, I want to spend the rest of, uh, you know, again, I want to spend the next chapter of my life doing this, but it makes your life bigger. For you, it was, it was about self-fulfillment, and you had a wonderful missionary mission down to the Bahamas, and I think that is outstanding. Other pilots could follow in your footstep. We had a lot of pilots during the summer that wanted to help out and go down there. That wasn't exactly the right time to go because there was a lot of confusion, but as things have settled down a little bit more, I think that you hit a good point, Dad, because right about now is when we were thinking about giving back a little bit more during the holiday season and beyond, and the folks there still need help. So uh, let's encourage people to maybe look at some of the aviation outreach organizations and see if there are missions that would fit they ca- their capability personally and their aircraft capability. Right. And there's, uh, there's Harvest Aviation in Florida. That's the, that's the group I fly with. There's Wings of Grace. There's King's Wings. What you can do is just Google Aviation Ministries, Aviation Outreach for the Bahamas, Aviation Ministries for the Bahamas, and get involved and just say, hey, I'm a pilot. I've got four, 300 hours, 200 hours, or I just want to help out. I just want to come and literally put things in boxes. And you could do that. Right. And AOPA also has a couple of publications to help out. We we do have some guidelines for that, and, and we have publications about flying to the Bahamas and flying to the Caribbean. One one technical word of note, the call signs are going to soon be changing. The Compassion Flight call signs, which were earlier, I think, issued to individuals, will now be issued more to the organization, the Umbrella Organization. And that is also as part of the movement to ADSB identification. So folks who are going to fly some of these Compassion Flight missions Make sure to get with your organization that you're flying under that umbrella. Make sure you have the right credentials. All right, let's talk about the fifth thing that we haven't talked about yet, which is do you think you are really too old to do this? I mean, come on. I mean, if you're 50 years old, you know, you a lot of people said, I've been there, done that. You know, I'm ready to go and not do anything. And this is, you know, 10 years ago, we heard 50 is the new 40, you know. Well, now I think 50 is the new 25. Okay. And if you think you're too old, then, you know, then stay home. It's your life. It's your time and it's your money and you're in control of it. And there is such a tremendous if you have a passion for aviation and if you have a something where every time a plane flies overhead, you look at it, you got the bug. Whether you know it or not, you got the bug. And if you want to do it, don't ever think you're too old because you're not. Again, I got my private, uh, my private certificate in five months. 
I was 55. I got my instrument certificate. Oh, I'm sorry. I got my private certificate at 54. Uh, in five months, I got my instrument certificate, uh, my instrument rating rather, at 56 in one month. I'll be able to get my commercial in a matter of weeks. Well, you set a deadline. You yeah. got, I like the fact that you set a goal. Well, exactly. And that's with anything in life. But the, my, my main point is that we will probably live to we're 85 or 90 or even more. What are you going to do with your time? And if you have a passion for golf, get into golf, do it the best, step on the gas and go. If you have a passion for music, step on the gas, go. If you have a passion for aviation or if it's just a long time wish of something that you've always wanted to do, don't stop. Don't ever think you're too old because you can have your pilot certificate in three weeks if you go full time. That's a good point. You know, uh, one other thing that comes to my, to my mind is um, I was telling you a little bit about this before we got on the air. But I went, I went back to college at a pretty late point in my life, and I felt like uh, the learning was really a, a key thing for me to keep going. I really liked the learning, and I liked learning about new things to keep my brain going. And I think aviation is a lot that way too, Ted. I think that it keeps us active. It keeps us thinking. It's like a new language in a lot of, um, lot of respects, which music is for me also. I took that up pretty late in life too. I think that that encourages people to be lifelong learners, especially with aviation, because there are safety courses you could take. There are different ratings you can get, different abilities that you could pursue. I recently got my tail draggers, you know, sign off. I'm a seaplane pilot, that kind of thing. So you can kind of incrementally notch it up a little at a time, a little at a time. Absolutely. And it's hard. I, that instrument exam almost killed me. I mean, I'm not going to lie. That was a hard test. I got 75 on it. I was really upset because during the practices, I was getting 86s, 88s. The VORs threw me. When I got my results, I passed. But I was really upset that I got a 75. And then I thought to myself, this is the first time, Ted, in your entire academic career you've been upset at getting a C, uh, you know, getting a 75 on it. But I wanted to get as high as possible because I love this stuff. And also, it gives you this sense of fulfillment isn't doesn't even accurately describe it it's uh it's this almost it's this self it's this self encouraging enlightenment if you will that you have accomplished something that very few people in this country have accomplished and that's getting an instrument rating that's becoming a pilot and also what the coolest part is for me is that when i'm flying in my plane and i'm going somewhere and i look down and i look down at people and i think they're looking at me and i'm the guy who's right. flying right they don't the plane. have they don't have their pilot certificate right. you're out there looking up and we're out there looking down that's a fantastic way to end the segment Listen, Ted, I appreciate you coming on Hangar Talk today. Give folks the, um, the way to get in touch with you again on the YouTube channel. You could Google on, you could do a search in Google, YouTube Over 50 and Learning to Fly. You can Google Over 50 and Learning to Fly or just go to YouTube and search Over 50 and Learning to Fly. And there's a ton of great videos out there. And get out there and do it because it's your life. That's a great way to end it, Ted. We appreciate you being on Hangar Talk. I hope our paths cross again soon. And you're welcome to come back at any time. Great having me. Thanks And good so luck much. with that commercial certificate. I know you'll get it. See you.
So, you know, David, I've always really admired people who, for whatever reason, it's like they, they had to put their life on hold for kids or jobs or, you know, maybe they caught the bug later in life. The ones who, you know, say, hey, I'm going to go for it. I just think that's so cool. In a lot of ways, uh, harder to do than when you're young and, you know, in school and don't have any other obligations or anything like that. So all, more power to them. Yeah, that's exactly what Ted was talking about. He, and he basically said it's fulfilling your dream. You know, it's not out of reach. And it's a sense of accomplishment, you know, and, and basically also think about the community aspect of learning to fly. It's a whole new circle of friends, Ian, and a lot of uh, different things that you could share, different experiences you can share with other folks that are like-minded. So it's all good. Yeah, absolutely. Hey, I think that's all the time we have for this week. I'm Ian Twombly. Our editor is Austin Hansen. And I'm David Tulis. Don't forget, you can find us at aopa.org slash hangertalk. And, of course, we're on iTunes and on Spotify. All right. We'll see you next time. See you next time, Ian. Hangar Talk from AOPA, your freedom to fly.